Yeah, hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond Eight Figures. This is AJ, the journeyman entrepreneur, with another Beyond Eight Figure episode for you. On the show, we talk with top entrepreneurs about the realities of building an eight-figure business, what success really means to them, and hear from them about some of their winning strategies and tactics. Tune in to each episode to learn how to grow your business beyond 10 million, and more importantly, create your own personal legacy. Hello again, listeners to the Beyond Eight Figure podcast. This is AJ, the journeyman entrepreneur, and today I have a very special episode for you. From the moment I've recorded this interview, I couldn't wait for it to pass production and share it with you. After two years of hustling, my guest is returning to Beyond Eight Figures with a new story to tell. Last year, his business, Hergen Rother Realty Group, was among the top 500 Inc. 5000 for 2020 with a over 1,000% growth over the past three years. Besides being a wildly successful entrepreneur, our guest sees it as his mission to transform people's lives while helping them achieve both business success and personal fulfillment. You know him, you love him, and you learn from him. Let's welcome Adam Hergenrother. Adam, you've been on the show before. You were at eight figures then, now you've built up the organization to to hit that billion plus in value. You seem to have done that pretty fast. Sure doesn't feel like it. <laughs> yeah, it was simple, right? It was just a nice linear exactly. And I just get on an elevator and takes you up, right? Yeah. I mean, isn't that how success works? Yeah. That's uh, I listened to your last interview, so I know that yeah. success is definitely sequential. Yes, it is. And it's starting with the first domino, but if you don't start with the first one, you can't knock over the next one. So at that point, you had five companies. Are you still at five? And what's changed in there? Yeah, you know, thanks for that question. Um, and when you when you think about hitting a billion dollars or whatever number that you're going after, in any business, you're never doing it alone. And so while I sit here and I'm the voice for the company, the reality is, is the majority of people, my leadership team and all of our employees are working hard every single day to allow that to happen. In fact, most people in, in, in their business career get to a point where they start to feel like a fraud or an imposter at some point if your business is large enough. At least I did for a long period of time because you kind of wake up one day and you go, well, man, I'm not really doing anything anymore. And it's not, it's not that you're not doing anything. It's the feeling because you're not in strategy meetings anymore. You're not actually digging the hole anymore. You're kind of overseeing of the hole should be over there, over there. And that's just a different iteration of, of business building in it. And so for me, when you ask kind of what changed over the last, you know, a little over 18 months or so ago, nothing's really changed in terms of how I approach business. I actually would say that um, it's about mastering the boredom of success. And I think if anything, it's just continuing to go leaning into that concept more because people want things to change in business. They want, even though that if they, if they just stayed more consistent on things that they already know that work well, they would double or triple their income. Knowing that, and despite that, people naturally go out there and want to go after something that's shiny or changes or distracts them from what they're really doing which then just removes the domino effect of their business. And so they wonder why plus or minus most businesses in any industry stay about the same where they are year after year. Again, plus or minus 10%, just majority of them kind of stay in this holding pattern. There's a whole series of reasons we can break that down into why models, people, and, and, and how you look at things. But 
from the start of that is that people need to understand that you have to master the boredom of success. It's like when Tiger Woods was learning to play golf. When he was three years old, his dad had him in a garage swinging a golf club for three or four hours a day while he was crying. I mean, no wonder why the guy's messed up now, right? I mean, think about that. <laughs> but when you think about that, Tiger Woods wasn't, you know, swinging a golf club for four days and then, you know, throwing a baseball for another three days. He only focused on golf. And if you've read Andre Agassi's book, which is fantastic, it's the same type of story, right? His dad built this machine, right? I forget what they called it, that like that thing just kept throwing balls at him. He had like a million balls a year and he hated it. But, and it's the thing is, is, but it was that focus, that mastering of the boredom. And I'm not saying you need to go to that degree that his, their parents put them in, but that's just an extreme example of when you focus on one thing that you know is going to move it, that's how you achieve exceptional results. I mean, look at even Apple, right? Apple, while they're in different industries, they don't really change much. I mean, for a company that has $250 billion in cash sitting in a bank account somewhere, they could go off there and, and use and, and do some R&D if they wanted to. But what do they do? They, they make your phone a little better. They give it another name, like a 12X and 12 Pro, and then they sell it for $1,300, right? And so like they, look, they, they just focus on their one thing and then vertical integration or the flywheel effect can continue on from there. But those flywheel effects or vertical integration of companies come from organizations staying focused on the core pillar, which then allows them to integrate fully other products that make them more effective. And you've really chosen to focus yourself in business to start and then in a series of businesses where people are not only the center, they are the the real asset in real estate. Yeah. Well, you know, as you're building an organization, whether you're just a solopreneur now or you're you're starting off in your entrepreneurship journey with a couple employees, you always every book that you ever read will say people are the most important asset. And in the beginning you kind of intellectually understand that. But in the, in when you're first grinding those years right out, it's really you. For most people, right? Most people don't have a million dollars sitting in the bank to go hire really talented people. So you are the talent. So you are the one doing everything, right? So you're the one building, you're wearing the marketing hat, the financial hat, you're wearing all these different hats and you're grinding through and you're building it. So you have this kind of inflated ego almost that you're the value to the organization. And it's not to say inflated because in the beginning you are, you are the organization. But as you start to trans, trans, transact or start to transition into that next iteration of what business building looks like, you have to fully get that visceral feeling of what it's like to hire somebody better than you for the job that you're hiring them. And this is where most entrepreneurs get confused. It's not about hiring somebody better than you for your job. It's about hiring somebody better for the job that you're giving up. And I think people need to understand that difference. Like if you're doing accounting, and you go hire somebody that's not as good as you, then that's not a good hire. That's not a good use of your investment of dollars. But when you go out and hire a CFO or a controller or accounts payable or receivable individual, and they're better than you at what they're doing, they should be. They should be better than you, so you don't have to worry about that. And then the same thing goes for marketing. Same thing goes for sales. Same thing goes for leading. Same thing goes for operations. And then at the end of the day, you wake up and you realize you've got really amazing people around you who are actually driving the organization and itself forward. On your journey, when did you kind of feel like you had that organization? How far into it? Yeah, you know, I don't know if it's just one moment that it just shows up, like Christmas with presents underneath the tree. I think it's much more of a uh, just a slow burn. That's why it's painful. I mean, building a business is painful, um, but it's also 
an unbelievable opportunity to grow and, and characterize yourself. So I think for me, it just goes in steps, right? It's kind of like, I, I believe business building is, a, is like a stair step. You figure you go up and then you have a vertical, you have horizontal, vertical, horizontal, vertical, horizontal. And that's kind of the way you reach your goal. And each one of those, you have verticals growth, but with growth, there becomes breakage, breakage of your models, breakage of your people, breakage of, of what you're focusing on. In the beginning, when it's just you, you're doing everything. Then you have to reposition yourself to what you're focused on. You also have to then start repositioning everybody in your organization on what they're focused on. That's, that becomes part of your job. So for me, it was really probably the last, I don't know, five years or so where I started to kind of wake up and realize that, and how do you really need to be here? Like I, I really, and I, it's not that I, I don't, love being here, but I got to really dictate how my schedule looks, what it looks like. You know, I have basically three and a half structured days a week. I have a day and a half Thursday afternoon through Friday or just unstructured for me to ski with my kids or work, just depending on what it is. But there's no, it's just this flexibility of it. Way too many entrepreneurs have way too many packed schedules. They just can't, they have, it's like they look at their calendar and it's packed from Monday through Saturday and they, they have no time for any problems or surprises, right? Surprises are problems too, or they're surprises when you like them, then they're good. So they just show up. And so you have to have room in there to actually work on the organization. In the beginning, you just got to slither that away. So for me, it was probably about five years when, when you kind of start looking up and you kind of just, you're looking at your calendar and you're going, I don't, I don't really need to be here. Like I can do, I could pretty much do anything I really needed to do in one day. Um, and then really take the rest of it. I don't want to, and most entrepreneurs don't want to do that. But then that gives you the ability to really focus what people refer to as working on the business, which all that, just unpacking that because people get lost in that term. Working on the business just means that you're casting a greater vision from where you are. You're thinking through more complex issues or vertical integration opportunities, or you're looking beyond where current footholds are or where you have holes in your boat from people. And until you're having an elevated view of that, which is on the business, you're not going to notice that one of your employees is actually holding you back, even though they've been there the whole time. And it's not their fault, right? It's not necessarily, they're not great people and they're there, but it's not until you're willing to be at that elevated level and to look brutally at the facts of the organization with no emotion attached to it, that you'll have the clarity to be able to make the decisions that you need to make in order to break through that next ceiling. When you have to make those sort of harder decisions, like for example, when it is somebody who's been there from the start, who's now holding you back, how do you go about making that decision? Well, the hardest decisions that you're going to make in business around people and money. And if you're not willing to make very tough decisions around people and money, then you shouldn't be a leader from the beginning. That's not whether it's right or wrong. It doesn't matter, right? It's not about who makes more money, who doesn't make more money. This is purely about whether or not you want to embark on these type of decisions. Because people go, well, I'm just not really willing to make that decision. Then, then, then you're just going to be okay with what you have then. But that's not what you want. And you go, well, no, I want to go here, but you're unwilling to let go of what's actually holding you from getting there. And so what you have to do is you have to first get, get clear. And it also doesn't mean that you become a dictator and you start firing everybody with no remorse, right? It's, it, there's two versions that you can go. One is that I don't want to move anything and I end up staying where I are and you end up suffering and your family suffers because you're unwilling to make that decision or other employees that are talented are suffering because you're unwilling to replace that person, right? I always like to look at sports because sports is just is a huge business. People see it as a sport, but if you, if, as, as Michael, you know, had talked about before, in business is my sport and I think it's your guys too and a lot of people listening. Oh yeah. Sport is nothing but a business. It is, and it's also the most, it's got such visibility into the business itself. 
And so if a quarterback is not doing well, the, the coach doesn't even have to make the decision. The fans are making the decision for them, right? They're going, get him out, get him out, get out. And ultimately the coach is going, yeah, you've got to get out. we got to replace you. And they're, not, they're not going, oh, Tom, are you okay? I know you threw some interceptions, but are you going to be okay with this? No, they're just making decisions that's best for the organization. I think that the thing that individual leaders need to understand is, are you making that decision from a personal standpoint or are you making that decision from the business standpoint? If you have clear expectations and clear standards on what is to expect from everybody in your organization, you let standards and expectations be the bad guy. You're never the bad guy. And so if you have somebody in your organization that isn't holding up the bargain, you, you can set up a 90-day action plan of saying, we need to see these results in 90 days. Do you agree with them? And if they agree with that, then you have a written out plan of what the next 90 days look like. In the first 30 days, you sit down with them and say, hey, how the first 30 days go? Did we hit X, Y, and Z? And if they go yes or no, if they say yes, great, let's go on to the next 30 days. If they hit no, then you go, well, hey, you know, we all agreed that you'd hit these numbers. And then they go, I know, I just can't do it. And that gives you the opportunity right then to say, well, do you think there's a better position for you? So again, it's not you being the bad guy. It's the standards and expectations that you have of how people perform in your organization, just like in football. Right? If Tom Brady is not making the, the, the passes that he needs to, it's not because Tom's not a good person. It's because he's not making the passes that he needs to. It's, he's letting and holding back the rest of the team. And so when the coach is saying, Tom, you're going to go sit on the bench, he's not saying, oh, because you're not a good person. Right? People are connecting the two together because they're not clear. In football, it's very clear if somebody's winning or not. Right? Like They're either making the pass or they're not. In, in business, we're not taking the time to set the rules of what clarity is or what expectations are. So therefore, we have a distorted view, a distorted view of what our expectations are, and the employee has their expectations of what needs to happen, and they're so far apart, that's why you always think of each other as people that are that are fighting against each other. And so how you bridge that gap and how to start removing it to your question is that you have very clear expectations and standards for every employee of your organization. And if you have leaders who are leading other employees, then you make sure they have clear expectations of doing the same thing, but it starts with you in the top. Then from there, the standards and expectations become the bad guy. They become the conversation. Not It's not an opinion because when somebody has an opinion, Michael or AJ, they defend it, they neglect it, and they will argue it, right? Those are opinions. But when you have facts, people deny and defend and neglect facts. They can create a story around it, but that's different, right? And with plain facts, those numbers speak volume. And then you let that dictate your decisions, not you personally, how you feel about somebody, whether you like them or you don't like them. That should not have a place in your organization when it comes around performance of an individual. That makes a lot of sense. It goes back to the, what is it, like the original management adage? What's measured is managed. Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And then just layering in, oh, people actually matter as we've evolved in our management practices over the past hundred years. <laughs> Wait, they're not replaceable capital? No, it is true. It's, it's funny how you say that because, you know, on my journey as an entrepreneur, probably one of the reasons why I am still very much a journeyman, I've gotten many times up and standards and clarity are very easy with smaller teams. I find, like I've done this a few times, around 15 people, things are flying by. 20, 30, all of a sudden I gain 30 pounds, <laughs> you know, I'm not sleeping and lo and behold, the organization, you know, it, you can't manage, you can't 
talk to that many people. So, you know, how would you normally tell your, you know, the people you work with, how do you walk about setting these standards? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, I think if you look at what Google did a couple of years ago when they tried to eliminate middle-level managers and then they went back to it because their employees asked for basically to go back to having middle-level managers was, was a great example of this. It's not middle-level managers aren't there to tell you what to do. They're actually there designed to help you if you're doing it properly. And people think of middle-level managers as like those you know, sitcoms where somebody is slapping you across and yelling at you and stuff like that. That's not the point, right? The point of middle-level managers is to provide clarity and communication to keep everybody involved rowing in the same direction, right? And that's why middle-level managers exist. And the conversation from somebody up here to down here is so different that the person who is five layers away from the, the first employee, this doesn't mean they're better than them. They just are in a different level of conversation. So they're not actually the best person to serve that person, right? Like Michael Jordan is not the best coach. We found that out, but he's a great player. Right. So it's just you see the parallels in these things. Right. So then you have to find somebody that's always maybe a step or two ahead of where their group that they're leading so they can actually lead them. But fundamentally, when it comes down to this, is there's what's the rule of five, essentially, which I'm sure you guys have heard of. Most people there when you get when you're in 15 people and for most organizations, everyone knows what everybody's doing between 10 and 15 employees. Right, particularly there, they know they're sharing it. They kind of know what AJ's doing. They know what Michael's doing over here. They have a very good pulse on where the organization. It's so funny because the minute you get like one person beyond that, it's like it goes away. Like literally, it's not even like it's like one sixteenth person. All of a sudden, it's like wow, what happened to the organization? You're like we just added one person. It's like the tipping point. It's like thirty three degrees. Is it is it freezing? But all of a sudden, one degree more and it's frozen. And that's kind of the same way it happens. That's why it feels so heavy. You're like oh, there's just a big jump. Because once you get beyond that kind of 15, 20 people, then organizations start developing these little automatic kind of pods based on the level of, of knowledge they have in the industry. Again, or their or particular product or service that they're doing, which is why, again, middle-level managers come in to exist so they can then take and channel the information that's coming from the top or leadership. Not from the top from a, like a, you have to do this or else. It's just visual. It's communicating where the organization is going so everyone's growing together. So each leader should be leading no more than five people. They should be pouring into those five people. The thing that people have to understand in business, when you get beyond a certain number of people, about four or five people in your organization from employees, once you get to 10 or 15, you can't equally give into every employee. Time is no longer equal. And, and people just got to be okay with that. Like Tom Brady probably gets more attention than the linebacker or, or you know, a backup linemen, right? Like just because they're all on a team, but they're, Tom's going to get more attention because he adds more value. So the people, doesn't mean he's better, it just means he adds more value. So as an organization from a business standpoint, the people that are adding more value, the people that you are leading, get your undivided attention. It's not equal. And your time should not be disturb, distributed equally to everybody in your organization. You should be pouring in to your key people. And another way to quantify this is I'm sure you've probably heard of the Pareto principle, which is the 80-20 rule, right? Or 20% 20, 20 of your time basically should produce 80% of your results. And so I like to look at it this way. If you work 50 hours in a week, that would be 20% of 50. It'd be 10 hours a week, right? So 10 hours of your week as a leader should be producing 80% of your results. And so then you come back and you go, okay, now I need to relook at my calendar. So if, if I have 10 hours to produce 80% of my results, then if you're leading people, you're going, okay, is that 10 hours? focused on the people that are going to give me the biggest return. 
And so when you start looking at it objectively like that and you start removing emotion, well, this person needs to be touched by me. Maybe, maybe not, but you don't have the ability to do that. So what you have to do is you have to focus on the people that 20% of your time is going to produce 80% of results. When I get into most businesses or organizations, what I see is that the leaders are spending 80, you know, 80% of their time with people in the bottom half because they require more time that are generating 20% of the results and they're not pouring into their top people. So the top people end up leaving because they're not getting the attention and support and growth that they need. I think I've seen that happen at least half a dozen times myself. I've done it. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah we all have, though, right? I mean, yeah, I've lost some great people because it was like, okay, they're not screaming. <laughs> yes, exactly. And you go, oh, I don't need to take care of them. They're doing it themselves. Well, that's the exact opposite approach that I've just taken, right? It's just more of like, well, no, the people that are actually performing the best, I'm going to go hang out with them the most. And then I'm going to go hire somebody that's better suited than me to go deal with the rest of the other people. And so there, that's, again, the idea of middle-level managers or middle-level leaders. I like to think about people manage a process or a system and you lead people. I don't really like the word manage people because you just really you manage the system or a process and you lead others to those management of the systems and the process itself. How would you get started if you were in an organization really just diving into the focus of what creates value with, you know, which employees are creating value? How would you begin the process of moving from a, everyone knows everything to the rule of five, maybe? Well, yeah, you're in, you said two things that are important. One of them is that you hit this in the beginning when you're focused on growth and it's really you and a few people building it, you have monumental growth and you probably are getting into cash or getting into cash flow, depending on what the product or service is, if that's your model right away and you're feeling it. Then all of a sudden you kind of, and I experienced this when I first started expanding, we're in 30 states. The first location you open up is very profitable. The second location you open up was actually profitable. And then all of a sudden you realize that I don't have the people and the staff and the models requirement to actually go beyond two. So then you take all the profits that you're making from model one and model two to reinvest back into everybody to actually go out and expand beyond that. And that is the hardest part as an entrepreneur. Because then, then again, it wasn't really from basically from two to 10, I wasn't really profitable yet. Now, I was profitable from those isolations, but I was taking the profit and reinvesting it back into the business through people, models, and systems and failing through that of what that expansion looked like until you hit this next critical point, which is about, for me, it was about eight or nine locations. And once you hit that again, then all of a sudden you just saw a huge economic boom. It's kind of like, it looks like a flat line that goes straight up. That's that geometric growth that people refer to. And it's kind of like a stair step. In the beginning, you go straight up. It's this vertical growth from you. And then you start investing all of it. And you're going, man, this sucks. I, I was making money. I'm doing all this stuff. Now I'm working harder. I'm, I'm, I'm failing more. I'm trying to expand this thing. And yeah, and it's things flat for a while. And you're reinvesting this. And you're seeing your buddy over here buying a new house or whatever it is. And you're just trying to figure out how to make cat payroll. And you're going through all these challenges. Then all of a sudden, though, it's like a, if you want to go high on a trampoline, you have to go down first before you can go up. If you want to shoot a bow, you have to pull it down first to let it go. And it's the same thing with a business. You have to maybe go backwards at times, not for every organization, but for most organizations that are scaling, you end up going backwards for a period of time to just thrust upwards way beyond anybody else. And, and at that point, when you're going upwards, you have so much momentum behind you that you can't be stopped. Because you've been spending the last four years or two years building this kind of pullback 
further and further and further. And then all of a sudden you let it go and you just are skyrocketing past them. And then people go, well, where'd they come from? what they do? And you go, well, yeah, you just haven't been paying attention to us for the last five years. And so that's kind of my, it is for people listening to this, that is, it makes you feel like you're in the middle of the forest and there's a dense fog and you don't even know which way is out. Right. And you can feel like that, but just, I, I just keep taking a step forward. It may not be the right step, but as long as you're willing to correct it and make another step, it'll put you in there. And business building in general is about surviving small mistakes. So stay out of big mistakes, stay out of big fixed contracts or fixed liabilities so you can actually survive it, right? Then then you hit your geometric growth, and that'll be it. So that's kind of the, the arc of where people get lost a lot of times in that mid seven figures for it. Um, but the second part of that question was, well, when you start putting these things in place, and for me, it was, I was, in, and I said this last time, I'm, I'm pretty inherently lazy when it comes to actually doing things that other people can do. I'm not, when it comes to like meditation or personal growth or exercise, I mean, I am probably more disciplined than 99.9% of people that are out there. But when it comes to something that somebody else can do, and it's like I have paralysis when it comes to it. So early on, it was even in childhood, I was the same way. I was getting my mom to do things. I was getting my brother to do things. I was getting other friends to pick me up and just constantly kind of doing that. So for me, when I started getting, when I realized that I started having to manage people that were taking 80% of my time, I instantly looked up and go, I'm not going to do this. I said, I'd actually rather not be in business. This is my own journey. I just said, I'd actually rather not be in business and go concentrate over here than if I have to go handle all of this. So then you kind of, you ask that question and I said, well, who's going to go do it then? Then you go out there and you either take somebody in your organization from that pool of people, or you bring somebody else in to now run all of that all of those and you then take on the leadership or the people that are making the biggest impact and you pour into them. But there has to be a bifurcation at some point in your business. You have to be willing to invest into leaders who are actually just leading people and managing that process of the people that are there. Yeah. I've learned the hard way of that like point of that inflection point of not doing that and trying to keep the profitability where you get and the pain that kind of gets got lucky small I have a very small violin I got to play I still was able to sell but not by being able to go through that period that is very cool sharing on that what is a trend you're seeing now that you're either really excited about or that you're utilizing as part of your business there's a couple I would say there's one that's more outwardly and one that's more inwardly and I can I can address both of them one I believe that the next generation of leaders know just as much about their inner world as they do about bottom lines and spreadsheets. I just think we're it's a trend and I'll talk that in a second. I think outwardly though, you know, from our building organization or a building company, one of the biggest challenges that we have is scaling construction, scaling new homes. And so one of the things that we're starting to see is not modular homes, but panelization of things. And what that really, what the, all that means is that one of the hardest trades to have is framers. And if people aren't familiar with framers, framers are the guys who actually erect the house. They, they're out there, they're cutting the two by fours, they're cutting the, they're putting the floor down, they're sheathing it, they're roofing it, all these, they're actually erecting the structure, right? And that takes the longest time. The wood's exposed on site, particularly up in the Northeast. We have rain and you have snow and you have ice and you just have the, the conditions are out there for two months sitting out and the woods just sitting on these things. So we've recently been, what we've been doing is, is, is ordering the wood, right? And then you, it's shrink wrapped and it's sent to a facility that's all indoors. And then it's laser cut based on all the walls, the, the rough openings for windows and doors. It's nailed in the exact two places because it's all done by machine. And you put together basically like a Lego kit. 
And so this kid, they, they, they take like a 10 foot wall, they build it out, boom, it's laser cut, it's laser nailed, put on there, marked, shrink wrap, and put on a thing, right? And then, Isn't this how Sears started? Yeah, probably, right? Yeah. Uh, Kit Homes. Kit Homes, yeah. And so you're, you're, we're starting to see this. So what it's doing is it's cutting the time down in half. It's, it's eliminating any scrap woods. If you think about how many, if there's 1.2 million homes, just homes that are built every year, right? Call even a million homes built every year. Think about how much excess scrap is used from all of those homes. And when you're using laser cutters, just not the scrap. So you, and it just, it removes the, uh, then you can put, you don't have to worry about framers as much because they're not building, they're just erecting it, which is a completely different project. It's a different scale. It's more fun. You're using cranes and you're just tying it all together. And so really fascinating on doing this and it allows the speed at which you can build houses. And right now the housing market being as strong as they are and how many people need affordable housing, not affordable housing, like voucher affordable housing, that's a different component. But I just look at it as, is there needs to be housing that is affordable for people, right? And there has never been a greater time in history, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but greater time in history that first time home buyers are struggling more than ever to get into a house. To give you some examples of this, in 2009 and 10, when first time home buyers really started coming back from that $8,000 tax benefit that they were getting, they represented about 52% of the marketplace at one point in time during that comeback. On average, you'd like to see first-time home buyers coming in around 33% of the marketplace. Right now, we're hoping just above 20%, and that number is dropping every single day. As things become less affordable because you have left less inventory, as rates even start to rise a little bit, I know rates have dropped and increased buying power, but not at the scale of 20% rises in single-family homes. They're just so much higher now. Down payment increases, everything increases, and the affordability index increases. So we need abilities to be able to construct a lot more houses. And I, and I believe that panelization of being able to ship these smaller homes and you can erect these homes in, in four or five days and then get your trades in there and you can build these houses within a month, month and a half instead of four months. I mean, think about it, every builder started applying this. And so that's kind of from a, I'm really fascinated on that trend right now too. The other, just one other thing I think is really fascinating is it's kind of like this Benjamin Button. Have you heard of these kind of Benjamin Button services? And basically what it refers to is that as companies become more valuable, the more they age. And what I'm going to give you an example of this. Like you think of like Procter and Gamble and Ford, they're not becoming more valuable necessarily as they age. You take a company like Google or Alexa or AI companies that in the beginning, they don't have as much data, but as they age, they actually become more valuable to you because they're storing more of your information. It's like you get a brand new iPhone. It doesn't know what you like or don't like. And it's kind of annoying. Like, hey, how come this didn't pop up, right? And so these Benjamin Button companies, they actually age, they become profitably in reverse, right? Instead of coming out of the gates really strong and then kind of deteriorating with like a car, deteriorates over time. These companies appreciate over time because of data that's being stored. And so if you're an entrepreneur in any industry, whether it's real estate or sales or yoga or Restaurants, how do you take that information and start implementing that into your business now? How do you think of in terms of models of I want to become more valuable as we age, right? Like a fine wine, right? Like I want to grow in, in that age in there. So I think it's just really interesting to think about business in that term. That is a cool concept. I mean, I love the the scaling of construction, but the Benjamin Button definitely because of data, data exhaust, you know all the different parts that are showing up now, there's so many things that could be done and played with. And you're right, 
if they're constructed correctly, it's just a flywheel. It just keeps adding data and gets closer and closer to that. I like. Nine to the second part of that, the inner question, which is probably more important to me than anything in the outer side, which is this fascination, and this is just for me, the fascination of business owners who have come into business for some sort of economic benefit, whether even you're doing it, right, for some sort of profit benefit to gain something, for to try to win, to try to prove to the world, to try to prove to somebody else. Whatever. There's a whole bunch of different reasons people are honest with themselves why they get into business in the first place. And then I, I think at some point, most entrepreneurs, once they reach a level of success, that, that number can be wildly different for human beings. Uh, everyone's got a little different nature. But you start to feel a little inadequate. You start to feel like something's missing. It may even feel like just this itch that's deep inside you that can't be scratched on how much success you have or how many companies you sell or how many people's lives you changed or how many people wrote you a note that says how wonderful you are, how many you know hospital wings have your name on it. There comes just this, this hollowness. In fact, what I've seen is the more successful I became in my life, monetary-wise, the deeper that felt because you have this impression that the more successful I get, the more I can give, the more I can... And, and contribute to hospitals or donations or more people I can impact, man, I'm going to feel great. And so you strive to go to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And it actually, it's like you're climbing higher and higher on a ladder, realizing you're higher and higher up, but you actually feel worse. I got really depressed with this when I realized that like people just didn't care or gave a shit about what I made or what I did or even how much you gave. And so, yes, some people do. And so I think there's just been this big transition that's happened over the last decade, 15 years or so, and it's becoming very strong now. And that's why our entire podcast is called Business Meets Spirituality, because I, I woke up 10 years ago and said, I don't want to go live in a cave, but I don't want to build a business just to have success without fulfillment, right? And so there's got to be this middle gap. And so I went on a very deep inward journey in my life of trying to figure out how I feel whole, how I feel peace, how I feel joy, even through the ups and downs of all businesses. And what you come to realize is, is I'm not going to go deep into the value right now, but the mind itself is the cause of all suffering because it keeps telling you what you should be doing, where you should be going. It's like, you need to go do this errand, you need to go do this. And so people just get caught up in this linear progression of trying to think they need something else to make them feel whole. When I ask people and I say, hey, well, when you get something, where do you feel good? And they go, well, inside. I go, well, the outside thing had nothing to do with the inside thing. So they're two separately things, which is why I say you do inner work and you do outer work. And for me, when I really started focusing on the inner work, I actually started attracting better individuals in our organizations and our organizations actually were supported almost by life to grow. And it doesn't mean that you can be a, there's plenty of people that are out there that have very bad ethics and poor, you know, and, and just treat people like crap in their organizations and become successful. That can happen too. I'm not saying you won't get it that way, but I'll tell you is if you become very successful through those means, you're going to be hollow. There's going to be a part of you that feels absent. And no matter what you do externally, you're never going to be fulfilled. And I want to be able to walk around this world regardless of what happens in my business, regardless of what happens in my life and be undisturbed. Meaning that I'm not caught in the emotion. I'm just experiencing the emotion. That's why business is this conduit for our personal growth. It's this opportunity for us to grow personally, untangle ourselves from ourselves. And as we use business as this opportunity, you actually become a fierce competitor in the business environment because you're no longer paralyzed by fear or you're no longer elated by winning. So you actually stay consistent. It's like the best definition of the Tao. You stay in the middle and you stay centered and you can see things better than anybody else comes. You become clearer. You become more present in conversations with individuals. You can see what your customers want better because you're not caught 
in the personal gain of everything. You're caught in the stream focus of your organization, but for the betterment of the organization, not for the betterment of you personally. Those will come. When that comes, enjoy it, but don't go after it and make it your sole mission in your life. So that's just a trend that I've been coaching a few CEOs of massive companies on this kind of inner growth just because they wake up and they go, I listen to your podcast, listen to those things. And, you know, frankly, I'm just unfulfilled. I've got all this money. I've got my family and I'm just, there's something missing. And I go, yeah, because it's got nothing to do with outside. And so that's just a really fascinating trend of how many people are waking up to that and realizing that there's so much more to life than just building this business. It's, I mean, just kind of jump in on that. It's I was going through your different programs. You have your business coaching, the one, you know, the team, the one on, but the project you really kind of talks to the whole thing. And once again, as someone who loves this journey that we do as entrepreneurs, I really liked your approach of it because it's something I've heard people talk to, but they don't structure like, oh yeah, you got to do this. You got to have this and you got to have this, but I like you've built a structure around creating this whole. Yeah. Would you just kind of jump a little bit into Project U? Because I really think that hits what you're doing, you know, on this. Yeah. You know, um, we have what's called, we have like a holistic formula. It's called the fulfillment formula that we've kind of developed and trademarked over the last couple of years. But really, I'll tell you what happened. I was going, I started teaching around the country and giving keynotes and to workshops and different things for the last kind of decade. And frankly, I would just see certain people from certain organizations show up multiple times and they'd be like, oh, this is great. Like, thanks for this inspiration. And I'm like, well, what'd you do with it? And they're like, well, I didn't know. And nothing really happened, right? They just kept showing up for this training, but there wasn't really any accountability around it. And yeah, they, maybe they felt good for the next week after coming to a training event, but their lives really didn't change. And so then I'm like, well, what am I doing, right? Like maybe a couple people did or a couple people did those things, but not the impact that I wanted. So I started then kind of breaking down my own life and I go, well, what do I do, right? What, what have I learned from being around people that I want to model my life after, not just billionaires, but people who are actually living a life that I think is worth living? And, uh, and so we kind of created it around four components, which Project U is a year-long immersion course. It's, we, we cap out every year at 25 people, so we never have more than 25 people. People from all over the world, from France to Alaska, come in, and we basically – there's – there's a bunch of things that we do monthly, but there's four main quarterly events. And each quarter is focused on a key component of what I believe is the fulfillment formula for your life. Like the first one we work on is health and wellness. And it's not just about, I've done, I've done 21 kind of Ironman races in three and a half years. So I'm not, we don't need to go do Ironmans, right? But it's about health and wellness. It's about understanding health and wellness. It's about creating habits that last for life. And you can do this thing. So we actually get people physical coaches, we get nutrition coaches, we get them on a plan, and we force them to do this throughout a year to build these really big habits in their life. So again, the first one's health and wellness. Then we go into the second quarter, which is all about wealth. And I don't mean just about building. Most of the people in here are, we actually, we have people that provide money to give scholarships to people that can come into this program, which is really cool for past recipients of this course. But it's not just about building money. That's a a strong component of it, but wealth is really understanding what is money. Money is just a tool in your life. If you think of it as money of anything else but a tool, then you're already lost when it comes to managing money. You are a steward of capital, like you are a steward of your hammer. Hammer doesn't run around hitting stuff, right? That would not be good. And it's the same way for your money. You have to understand what money is. So we go through really understanding how to incorporate money into your life and what it is and when you do it, what is it good for, right? How do you do that? So we really fundamentally go around. And then also like, we also 
encourage people and, and most people doing the program buy at least one investment property in the next year. That's kind of a requirement that they do, whether they have money or don't have money, we show them how to do that. So we actually start getting them on the wealth building wagon, not cash building wagon, but the wealth building wagon later on. And then we get into spirituality, right? And um, we go deep, we get everybody certified in, in TM, um, Transcendental Meditation. We have a whole bunch of deep conversations of, of business and spirituality. And spirituality is not some lost word, right? It's just all it means in the essence of things is that there's something greater than me, right? There's something bigger than me. And how do I tap into that? So we go real deep into what that looks like and how to bring that into your business life and how do you bring that into your life. And then the last quarter is on leadership and relationships, which is about how do you actually have an effective relationship? How do you have it so that your family isn't getting your leftovers, which is how most entrepreneurs operate. They operate, they give everything to their business and they come home and they're getting whatever is left over to their family. So how do you structure your life so that that's not occurring? You don't want that the people that love you the most like you the least and that the people that know you the least like you the most. That's not how you want to live your life. And so we restructure people's idea around relationships and how relationships are in business and how relationships are in their personal lives and really give them fundamental techniques and models and systems at each one of these quarters to be able to bring this into your life with accountability and practice. And then at the end of the year, they graduate and that's why it's called Project You because the whole project is you. Very cool. No, I, I like that a lot. I Part of the reason I sold my agency seven years ago was I was getting to be that type of person. I was always out. People love me. And then I would see my kids every once in a while. So now I'm rebuilding in Southern Spain, living here in the Costa del Sol. So yeah, I, I, I really like that. I'm probably going to bug you off this because this is definitely something around that resonates with my journey. A lot of what you're talking about reminds me of a 130 year old, uh, article written by Andrew Carnegie called The Gospel of Wealth. And I was wondering if you were familiar with it. I am. I couldn't recite it, but I've definitely read a lot of stuff that Andrew Carnegie has written. And I, I, I know that I've come across that. Yeah. Uh, the, the big takeaway for those of you who don't know much about what Carnegie did is he pretty much said, okay, I'm one of the richest people in the world. I'm 35. I'm rich enough. I'm going to try to give away everything else um, awesome. and focusing on that outward. Still built a massive empire in the process. Yeah. Well, I'm drawing a blank on the guy's name right now. I don't know why, but he um, was just in the news a couple months ago uh, who just gave – he basically – you know what I'm talking about? The billionaire who he gave, gave away his everything. His entire vision was to give away everything before he died. And actually, he was the, the genesis around the Bill Gates giving fund. Like he literally, because what people, he's, he's, he's famous now for it, but for the last 40 years, he's been giving away $8, million, $8 billion. He's left with $2 million. Now, it's still a lot of money in those terms, but now we have $8 billion, right? And he lives in an apartment. He lives very frugally. And he, what I love most, though, is he gave all of this money away with nobody knowing. Like nobody knowing any of this stuff except for his close friends, which again, Bill Gates was doing on an interview for it. And he's like, he was the genesis of the creating the giving pledge of giving before you die and seeing your money. And it's, it reminds me of that, Michael, the, the Andrew Carnegie of being able to give your money away to be able to see it versus just holding on to it like it's like it's yours. It, we're all subject to law of of death, right? All, everything is going to die and it's going to be moved on. So 
whether how much money you have now, at some point is going to be transitioned into other people's hands anyways. So, and so might as well see it happen. Is that Chuck Feedy by chance? Yes, yeah, you, and yeah. he did the uh, he did the stores, the duty free stores. Duty free stores, yes. Exactly, uh, at one yeah. time, twenty something richest man in America, and secretly gave away. There's a great book on it, the billionaire who wasn't. Yeah, and it just came out, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what actually came out and got everyone's even attention because there was they, they, some people knew him, but most mainstream people don't know he was such behind the scenes by the way i love this too because if you're going to be wealthy and rich you might as well be not famous i mean seriously like i i think that's the best you're going to be wealthy like i want i don't want to be going around and people you have to have security i mean that's just me but i much i just think that it's it's i i feel what actors said that they're like you know we're in this profession and i'm grateful to be it but you know I'd much rather take the idea if we're going to be wealthy, I'd much rather not be famous just because it's just so it's, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a little bit of fame is nice from what I've heard, like localized fame where you can go be famous somewhere. But once you, when you leave, you don't want to get accosted in Paris or wherever you are. (laughs) That's a little degree, but no, that idea, like a advanced cheers. Everyone knows your name and they're happy to see you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Definitely on that. Cool. All right. If you had to start over, but at least now knowing what you do, what would you focus on to get yourself back up? Well, there's two things that I would do. Well, for one, when I, when I, it, 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 there's a caveat to this. You know, I was in my 20s when I started making a lot of money and I was young and kind of stupid. So I bought like $150,000 Porsche, right? Like I bought like an expensive house. I actually sold to Mike Myers, like Austin Powers. I actually built a house and sold to Mike Myers. He bought my personal house. So I, I did some stuff where I, I probably spent a couple million dollars on shit that I didn't need to, that gave me no joy, but just made me to go, oh, look world, look who I am. Look how great I am. Look what I've done, right? Type thing. And it was very, you know, it's very hubris to do that. And it's, there's nothing wrong with any having a nice car or a yacht or a nice house. I also, it's just the intent behind it for me was to prove to the world. If your intent to have a nice house or buy something is just to enjoy it, you can notice that when people are getting out of their car or getting in their house, it's just the way they go about it, right? It's just, it's different. There's the intent behind it. My intent was everyone look at me, right? And so it was, it was just, you know, it was part of my journey and I wouldn't trade that. But one thing, I, if I had to do it now and it came in there, I would live extremely frugally on whatever salary that I knew that I could have. And I would take every dollar that I had and reinvest it back into people immediately. And that's that's something that I didn't do early enough is invest into the right leadership. And I invested into people, but I, in the very beginning, I saw people as kind of an expense, not an investment. And then I realized that like, I actually woke up one day and I said, you know, I wonder how many people, you know, Steve Jobs has around him that make 50 grand. I wonder how many people that, you know, you know, Walt Disney has around him that make $40,000 salaries. And what you start to realize is that the people that have built the biggest companies, the people that are next to them, they're also millionaires too. And so then I go, well, then how, well, then what do I need to do to develop a model around that? And so then you start realizing like, okay, well, how do I go build a model where I could create, whether that's through salary plus bonuses of profit, here's my foundation for this. Every entrepreneur should have a foundational set of money. And I don't care what it is. You get to pick. But it could be 100000 it could be 500000 or it could be a million. Because here's my thing with this. 
if it's more than a million, fine. I'm not going to judge, no judgment here from this, but $500,000 a year after tax, let me just use that as, an, as a number. Nothing beyond that amount of money that's going to make you happier. There, you have your second house, you can have whatever car you want, you can have a wonderful home, you can take the vacations you want. There's nothing beyond that that's actually going to make you happier. If you have more than that, awesome. I'm not saying don't go after it. I'm just talking about a foundational set of money. So once you kind of understand your foundational set of money, then you should start sharing in the profits heavily after that. It doesn't, need to, it doesn't mean you need to share up to you know more than 50% of the profits, but you get to pick. So maybe the first 500000 the first million you take, and that's your foundational set of money. Then beyond that, you start saying, okay, I'm going to share 30% of every dollar that I make over a million dollars, right? And I'm going to take that and it's going to be a profit sharing system for all of our employees and our leadership. And then after 5000000 million, I'm going to start sharing 50% of our profits, right? And so whatever that number is. And so you have this kind of foundational set of money around this. Um, so I would structure that and that will allow you early on to bring in top talent who can recognize you have a, you have a money system set up so that if we achieve these goals, the money will be able to, to impact other people in the organization around me. I once asked my mentor, I said, who earns hundreds of millions of dollars a year in free cash flow, which is just absurd amount of money, right? Not from selling a company, just pure cash flow, right? Just, and uh, he, uh, I said, I said, you know, do you ever, do you ever, was there ever a moment that you like arrived? Was there ever a moment, this is already my career, was there ever a moment that you just like, we just arrived and you're like there and he goes, never, it's never going to happen. Don't ever think you're ever going to arrive. But he did say, he goes, you know, there was one time and I said, tell me, right? Like he said, I walked into my board meeting and there was probably 25 people in my board and not just all board, but other people that are around them. Right. And he said, I sat down and I looked around and I said, and every single one of the people in here is a millionaire. And I said, he goes, in that moment, I just felt a lot of pride for organization and what we've built. And I just thought that was kind of a really cool story. That is very cool. I like that. Yeah, I love that. I I just started implementing profit share into my own organization. And there was an immediate shift in the people that I knew were going to be leaders long term in the organization and those who weren't. Because when they saw that opportunity, they latched on. And they doubled yeah. down. Yeah, I agree. Awesome. Good for you. So it seems like you're really focused on maximizing your personal impact. And I know you've got your own foundation now. What else are you doing? Are you investing beyond your people? How are you building your legacy? I think at the stage in my life, it's, it's, it's not just about the wealth that I generate for myself or even our family, which, and I think AJ, you said you listened to our podcast about kids and money dropped one off. You know, my kids are very clear that they're not going to get money from me. My kid, I'm going to, and we just had that early on because I think there's a lot of clarity that misses the point with people that grew up and, and kids that grew up in wealthy families or privileged families that they're going to inherit some amount of money. So from the beginning, I've been very clear on that. And, you know, I remember one time my oldest daughter came to me and she goes, dad, are we millionaires? And I said, I am, but you're not. And it was just a great opportunity to take that time. And I don't mean that even like rudely. I like, let me just use this as a way of just basically saying, I have, I borrowed eight grand to start my first business and you need to build it. And I want you to be a millionaire, but I want you to do it on your own energy. I will help you. I will, I will give you all the time you need, but you have to earn your stripes through this. 
And so from the beginning, they know that I'm going to pay for their education and I'll pay for their health. And that's it. Like they got a new health scare, they needed it. I would pay for that all day long. Even our trust that we have set up for our kids are basically, they can only live off after a certain, I think it's like 30 years of age. They can only live off the interest that those things have, or even a cap at a certain amount, like 10 or 15 grand. Like I don't want them getting more than 10 grand a month and just coming into them. Like I want them to actually to have to do something in their lives, right? It just because it's not, life's not supposed to just sit here and be easy. It's not the point. And so um, I think it's using these principles that we're now putting into our life. I'm still in my you know, late thirties, but I'm trying to put these principles in my life and then instill this into all of our employees. And then also, as I got, as you can see, I got really passionate about the spirituality and business side. I think one of the legacies I want to live, leave is the ability to be able to show people that you can build an organization that's conscious that, that has profit, but also has profit and culture. In our organization, we focus on 51% culture and 49% profit. At the end of the day, there's no right or wrong here. At the end of the day, every, every human being will tip the scale of one or two things, culture or profit. It doesn't mean they can't have both. And it doesn't mean that they're one or the other. It just means that when things get tough or things get down there, there's one that drives the question. Right? And we all know the people, if we've led people, who, who lead with money. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. You just have to understand that. And every six months, there's a money question. It doesn't matter how much money they're making, it's always a money question. And there are always Band-Aids going on those things, right? And so I really want to partner with people and be and surround our organization with people who lead with 51% culture, who at the end of the day, what tips the scales is the organization itself. And yet 49% is profit. So it comes really close next. It's not like 90, 10, right? Um, to do that. And so instilling this, and then I use every opportunity to teach and use language through podcasts and, and blogs and emails and and leadership lessons that we do weekly with our, with our employees and our agents that we go deep into understanding where joy comes from, what joy means and how to have peace and how to really bring that into your life. Because if you can, Sure, you can give somebody a million dollars, but how how great are they going to feel in a year from now? Seriously, like people just, it's why lottery winners in a worse off situation, not just financially, but most of them prefer that they never won the lottery in the begin with because they can't handle it. And so money is not the end all to this thing. It's just, it's just crazy that people think that way. But so then how do you teach people because our culture is so as culturized to believe that? of really changing that message that money is awesome and it's great and enjoy everything with money. Nobody's denying or renouncing that because that's the same thing of just going after money. But how do you use it in knowing that you are who you are first? And then it's, I look at it as like you be first and then do. So how do you first understand that joy and peace that you're looking for? Like when you get turned on, when you make a million dollars or a hundred thousand dollars in a month, you sell your company and you get turned on that internal feeling. What if you could walk around with that all day? Then, then you wouldn't need anything outside to turn you on. But then when you had it, you would just enjoy everything. So I have, you know, it's like, it's really the phrase, it's need nothing and enjoy everything. And when you need nothing and enjoy everything, you go out there and build whatever you want. Very stoic. Definitely. I, I like that a lot. It's, it's funny. I, my whole thing is also trust that our, what I call basic income. I tell the kids, look, there's money there, but it's never going to give you trips and all that it will give you what you need to survive if you want to do something if you want to do something else then great you get a little bit of extra but the reality is this is just to make give you the freedom to chase your passion 
but I like it. Have you read, uh, was it Strangers in Paradise? It's the whole thing about the idea that um, usually by the third generation, I mean, this is, you know, through history, the third generation is back to where the first generation, you know, even lower than where the first generation is. If, you know, from people generating wealth. Uh, James, it's a psychologist and he treated it like a whole sociological study about wealth and family, wealth generations. And it's just that concept of you go to a new land and you don't know anything. That's, you know, when you generate wealth, your kids, you know, what do they know? How do they, you know, do they just expect and setting them up? So I like how you're, but I don't think I've done that with my kids, but I do like, I do like the way you've put it. So I think I have some work ahead of me or some conversations because I have teenagers. That's a whole different realm. Yes. <laughs> reminds me of, I think it's the book or the concept short sleeves, which is exactly what you're referring to, which is the first generation builds it and grinds through it, builds it. The second generation sees the work ethic that's required of the first generation. And it actually is in part of building it. So they're actually building it too. And they're, that second generation is, is worked, is ethic, is there, they're building it up. And then the third generation just starts to inherit it. And they haven't seen what happens to do it because the first generation wants to give it to the third generation and go, I don't want you to have to do what I did. But then the third generation wrecks it because they didn't have to do what they actually did to actually maintain it or build it. And then the fourth generation comes back around and rebuilds it again because they didn't. They saw the, the laziness and they didn't see, they see their old oh, great-grandfather did this and I need to go do that. And it's kind of this short sleeve effect, which is really fascinating. And I, I wholeheartedly can see that. I'm in fourth and fifth generation on my family. And luckily, generation skipping trusts were in play and intertwined family corporate structures that really prevented a lot of the breakages you'd normally see from happening. But I think that probably had to do with my grandmother having a legal practice specifying in trust law. <laughs> she had seen all the problems. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been wearing this shirt the whole time or the, this hoodie. And I've been wanting to ask, so how do I avoid basic people? Because I want to do epic shit. Yeah. So it says, it says you can't do epic shit with basic people. Um, this is one of our, we have a company store and, and this has been our, our number one selling shirt or hoodie that we have for it. And I mean, really is that you yourself can't be a basic person. And there's no judgment on the human being here. We, we kind of have some fun with this language. It just means if you want to, you know, go put together an all-star team, you can't have basic players. You want to have players. Doesn't, we're not talking about the human being side of them. We're talking about people who want to play in the sport that you're in. And so if you want to, if you don't want to have basic people, you yourself need to be somebody that can attract high level talent. And so then I would, there's two questions I would ask you this and ask the listeners this is, would you want to work for yourself? Number one, right? And then two, would, why would somebody want to work for you? But if you start with number one, would, why would I work for me? My rules, my expectations, everything that I have, they lay it out and I would come into an organization and there was a figment of me sitting up there leading the way I lead, doing the things I do, would you work for that organization? And there's no judgment there. The answer is like, no. If you're really honest with yourself, there probably should be some no to it. There should be some no to it. And then you go, it doesn't mean it's wrong or right. Then you go, okay, well, how do I, how do I 
focus on this so that our organization, the business itself, is something that people want to work for, not because of me. And that's where you start making that transition from, you know, I do it, we do it, they do it, and then they do it, theirs. It's their business. That makes a lot of sense. I think it just goes back to your the theme that you keep hitting on where it starts inside you. Self-leadership precedes leadership. You can't lead anybody until you can lead yourself. You can fake lead people, but then talent will recognize that. Do you have any advice for our listeners who might feel that they're fake leading, that they're not really leading themselves yet? Yeah, I think you got to be willing to be authentic. You got to be willing to be you. And you already know that that's pulling at you. Most people that are not authentic know that there's something there and they cover it up with distractions or going after something or rationalizing why they do what they do instead of actually being in touch and listening and saying, how do I be authentic? And also, I'm very clear that there's a lot of people that don't like what I do and don't like me, period. You know, that's fine. It's the same thing. I always look at this and go, doesn't mean they, it doesn't mean they don't respect you or don't appreciate what you build. You just have a certain culture. and Not everyone's going to agree with that. Apple has a different culture than Android. People say, I hate Android. Do they really hate Android, right? No, the products, I mean, you look at the products, they're just great, they're good. But people, it's like they just adopt something because of their philosophy. So when you say like any business or you yourself, it's not that people hate you, they just have a philosophy in which way, it's like a Ferrari Lamborghini. They're both amazing vehicles, Mercedes, right? BMW, they're so awesome vehicles, but people have different flavors. So you have to be you though, so that you're willing to put yourself out there and somebody goes, I hate that. And somebody goes, I love that. Because that's when you actually get people that want to join you. They want to be part of what you're doing. We try to placate both sides. It's never really going to work. It's not going to work. And even go back to the first president. I'm not even talking about our presidents now. They had about a 50% approval rating, right? So to think that a president on average, plus or minus, gets about a 50% approval rating, you're not going to do much better. And by the way, presidents have books written about how amazing they are. And they have books written about how they should die. Right? I mean, in, in, in loose terms. There, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, they have, you get that. So it's just like, it's, it's that's going to happen. And if you're, you just got to be okay with that. Once you're okay with that, it gives you permission to be you, to be authentic, to build your business with your culture, with your standards, with your apparel, whether that's a, a you know, a five piece suit, if they make those things, right? Or if it's a t shirts and flip flops, but be you. Then attract people that share that philosophy. Yeah. I like that. From a listener point of view, I hope this really has been baffled because I'm sitting here going through my experience and seeing different things and going, ah, okay. In hindsight, it's pretty easy to, you know, like, ah, that's right. I could have done that. But being in those points of time, those inflection points where I maybe didn't make some of the decisions you suggested, I could see that value. So this is really, so you know, given that I keep this keeps resonating with me, who are who are the people you look for for your coaching and then the Project You? Because I'm just going to keep hitting on Project You. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, thanks. I mean, people that really want to learn about their inner world just as much as they want to learn about their outer world. That they want, you know, authenticity in their life. They've been yearning for it. There's an you know, there comes a point where there's orientations in everyone's lives at different seasons of their life. In the beginning, there may be an orientation about, I just need to make money and I'm willing to work 12 days a week. I know there's seven days, but you get the point, right? I mean, that's kind of how it was for me. When I first started, I was like, I'll work 12-hour days, seven days a week, and they didn't bother me. 
it was just, I enjoyed doing it. I mean, not every day, but I did it because I knew that it was going to get me to the point. That was a season of my life. And so there, that was the orientation was money. It was cash, especially in the beginning. It's really important. You need cash for a business, right? And then there's, then as we start to develop that and you become more mature as a human being and as a business, there's different orientations, not for everybody, but for me. And so when we're looking for people in Project U, there becomes a different orientation in people's lives where they go, you know, I've, it doesn't matter what income number they're at, but they go, man, I've kind of been doing this and I've done it and I can do this in my sleep, but I'm missing something, something missing in my life. And it's not a relationship. It's not my kids. They're amazing. I'm going to come home and I'm hollow. Why, Adam? I mean, that's the conversation I have with most CEOs, with most wealthy individuals and when we get their voice out there. It's just, they're like, can you help me with this? And I said, well, it's not me helping you in anything. It's me pointing you in the direction of where you really need to go. And that's the whole genesis of Project U, and that's the people that we're looking for to join that course. Now, besides that sort of you know, positioning, is there a type of persona? Is there like, oh, we look for people, you have to have an established business or have achieved certain things, or is it, you know, what type of business per, you know, entrepreneur really fits into this you know, program? Yeah, I mean, it's it's... Ultimately, somebody who has some level, most likely some level of success in business and or they sold a company and they don't know what they're doing <laughs> and they don't know where to go and they're lost, but they have the means. It's not cheap, right? It's a big investment people make and they have the ability to do that and invest themselves into it and also that are really willing to be on a year-long commitment And because it, it's a lot because here's what I find is people can be on a commitment for a month. But if you're on it for a year and you're with this course that's opening up and everybody in the course is opening up and sharing that you're hearing like these people, you know, netting $5 million a year and talking about how they have this problem and, and you're going, wow, like I didn't realize you were human, right? Like it's just almost like you brings everybody down and everyone's willing to share in the environment. And it just creates a, a, a place where people can have free conversations that have been blocking them and they're just willing to be truthful. Not like they're lying before, but truthful to themselves. There's a big difference between being able to speak the truth and lying. Yeah. I don't mean about lying, it's a different thing. It's about speaking the truth about what's bothering you, what's in you, what's going on. And having that place to be able to do that is what we found has been instrumental in people's lives. So with the program, how much of it's going to be in person next year? Yeah, there's, there's four events a year. They're three days long, so um, that are all in person. And then we do twice a month. We do um, Zoom calls now because everyone's all over the world. We do Zoom calls, and then there's weekly check-ins, and then there's check-ins with your um, your nutritionist and your and your coach um, that goes on in a, a weekly basis. So a high level, and there's you know obviously we create a group and everyone shares in the group. Everyone's got to report their tracker each week in there. So it's just a high level of, of interaction on a daily basis. And then there's big quarterly events that we have every year. And are you still doing those events? Cause like I'm in Spain where I'm in theory, if I travel, I could have difficulty coming back or, you know, crazy quarantine and all that. Yeah, we, we go into, we are, and we're doing it obviously socially distancing. So the room that we're in, it's only 20 people. So it's not a ton. The rooms that we're in are very large. So everyone can have their own table. Everyone has their own space. We're very open that we have had people that are international post to 2021 group because of that exact situation, because when they were going to start, they wouldn't be able to get back in there. So we just gave them the past and said, you start in 2021. But uh, everybody else that was in the U S we find the state that allows 
businesses to open and do those things. What we've actually found is that these hotels that we kind of we book at for these events has been have been awesome because nobody's going to yeah. <laughs> so they're actually there's nobody there. They love the fact that we're gonna spend some money there and we have like the whole resort to ourselves, which is awesome. Um, and there's plenty of space. So we haven't really felt that at all. And obviously there is danger anytime you move in the environment that we're in, whether you're going to a grocery store or anywhere. Um, and people just got to be okay with that. And if we had a couple people in the beginning that weren't, and that was perfectly cool too. And we just said, Hey, we'll, we'll jump back into 2021. With you. So, you know, as a personal thing, but then also for the listeners, are you already taking people for 21, you know, whatever yes. we're talking about the next year? Yeah, it starts June 21. And we do have a, we do have a list already going for that. And again, we will, we will sell out and we, we max out at 25 people. And I think we already have about eight or nine people signed up for 2021. Cool. Well, definitely, you know, I have to. Yeah, you know, I'll probably bug you on that because that is very cool. Yeah, yeah, we're really excited. About it. All right. Now, I really appreciate you kind of walking through because as I was going through and looking at the stuff, the project, yeah, you know, one the Vermont thing because I always spent my winters in Vermont, so I was like, cool. <laughs> I like Vermont. I love Vermont. Um, but then, second was Project U really does sing to me as talking about the whole person of the entrepreneur, which I think it's so much just, you can find all of that, but so fragmented across the different aspects. Everyone's trying to pitch one different aspect. So looking at the health, the wealth, you know, why we do it, the spiritual, all that together, along with, you know, what most people did, like, let's grow your business. It's like, okay, that's nice, but why? You really kind of get to that why. So that resonates. So thank you very much on it. Um, I guess one last thing for me is just, is there anything else you would like to uh, share with us? Like, how is the snow? Are you guys looking? Yeah, how's the snow up by you? So far, I'm a, I'm a big skier and skinner, which is skidding up a mountain, okay, which yeah. is super fun. That's, yeah. Um, it's big in Europe, actually. It's coming over the States for a while now. Um, which is a lot of fun. So I have, uh, we're looking forward to doing that over the next couple of weeks um, with our family. We have a mountain house out there. Uh, and then here's the other thing that I would just leave with people is that, you know, as you're building a business, it's not supposed to be easy. And you're not supposed to have all the, uh, you're not supposed to have all the answers. And you're going to feel like a fraud. You're going to feel like a failure. So one of the things that I like to do is, and I got this from Jim Collins, where he measures every day on a scale of negative two to positive two. And basically what he does is every day, if he's like, okay, today was a plus one. Okay. Today was a zero. Today was a negative one. But really what it's designed to do is when you have these days that are plus two and you feel like the world is just amazing and you're just, anything can happen. And it's like, oh my God, I'm so wealthy and all this stuff. It also kind of it just it puts you in check. Like today was a plus two, but then you have the negative two days where it feels like, oh shit, we're fucked, it's over, right? Like everything is gone, our businesses are ruined, my life's gonna be there, I'm gonna be living in a camper, like all of these things can happen. And on both of those extreme variations of things, you always go back and say, well, hey, you know what, I had a negative two that day, followed by a plus two day. And so I'm never as good as I think I am on my good days, and I'm never as bad as anybody thinks you are in your bad days. And so it kind of all evens out to understanding that you're gonna have plus two and you're gonna have negative two. And just accepting that coming into it. You know, before I did my first full Ironman event in Lake Placid, my coach came to me and he said, you know, Adam, there's a high do not finish rate in Ironman. It's about 30% in Placid, like 26 or 27%. 
And he said, you know why? He said, the majority of people who do not finish the race go into the race thinking that they're just gonna, there's not going to be a bad moment. And he's like, there's a bad moment sitting on your couch on a Sunday afternoon. So to think that while you're doing a full Ironman event, which is 2.4 miles swim, swim, 112 miles on a bike, then you run a marathon, that you're not going to have a bad moment. That's why people quit because they go into it with this expectation that it's going to be not easy, but there's not going to be a bad moment. Instead of understanding that you walk into this going that I'm going to take full advantages of the good times and I'm going to manage the bad times. And it's the same thing in business. Take full advantage when you're running downhill. But then when bad times come, there's always an uphill coming. It's always the up, there's the plus two and there's the negative two days. So take full advantage while you're running downhill, full advantage of the, of the good times and manage the bad times. And as you can manage those bad times, you ultimately will succeed at where you're going. Adam, thank you for coming on today. It's been fantastic. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And we're done. Thank you for joining our conversation today, audience. If you want to connect with Adam and find out more information about his businesses and his coaching program, look in the show notes below for the links and the details. And don't forget to subscribe to the Beyond Eight Figures newsletter to find out all the great cool guests we're having coming up and other great subjects. Um, also, you can find my social media stuff down below too. All right, everyone. Thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful day and I look forward to talking to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of Beyond Eight Figures is over, but your journey as an entrepreneur continues. So if we can help you with anything, please just let us know. And if you like this episode, please share it with someone who might learn from it. Until next time, keep growing and find the joy in your journey. This is AJ, and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye.